Good morning. It's Thursday, the 17th of August, and this is Govindraj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes for the day: the US banking industry braces for downgrades as India's banking industry gets upgrades. Oil prices until recently projected to stay low are now skyrocketing. When will inflation settle down? A plant in a year, ramping up manufacturing in the new age. Ahmedabad, Kolkata and Pune are cities where you can actually afford homes today. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. US banks get downgrades, Indian banks upgrades. In 2008, the US faced a banking crisis which spread to the rest of the world and Indian banks weathered the storm for various reasons including the fact that foreign banks in India never had too much play in the local system. The Indian banking system did not actually hold up very well after that as massive defaults crippled banks turning it into a political hot potato as well. The cleanup effort that followed in the last few years has led to most Indian banks now sporting strong balance sheets or at least much stronger than in the previous decade. Now before we come to Indian banks let's go back to the United States. A Fitch ratings analyst has warned that the US banking industry is facing the risk of sweeping rating downgrades on dozens of banks that could even include the likes of JP Morgan Chase. The ratings agency had cut its assessment of the industry's health in June. Christopher Wolf, analyst and managing director for bank ratings in North America, said this cut in assessment went largely unnoticed because it didn't trigger downgrades on banks. But another one-notch downgrade of the industry's score to A+ from AA- would force Fitch to reevaluate ratings on each of more than the 70 US banks it covers, Wolf told broadcaster CNBC. If we were to move it to A+, then that would recalibrate all our financial measures and would probably translate into negative rating actions, Wolf said. Incidentally, another rating agency, Moody's, downgraded 10 small and mid-sized banks and warned that cuts could come for another 17 lenders, including larger institutions like Truist and US Bank, again according to CNBC. Now, all of this comes on the heels of a massive downgrade earlier this month when Fitch downgraded the US long-term credit rating, blaming it on political dysfunction and growing debt loads. This time, Fitch is intent on signaling to the market that bank downgrades while not a foregone conclusion are a real risk, said Wolf. The problem created by another downgrade to A+ is that the industry score would then be lower than some of its top-rated lenders. The country's two largest banks by assets, JP Morgan and Bank of America, would likely be cut to A+ from AA- in this scenario since banks can't be rated higher than the environment in which they operate. And if top institutions like JP Morgan are cut, then Fitch would be forced to at least consider downgrades on all their peers' ratings according to Wolf. Now back home Fitch has upscaled Indian banks saying the operating environment for Indian banks has strengthened as economic risks associated with the COVID-19 pandemic have ebbed. A number of prudential indicators for the sector have also improved compared with pre-pandemic levels though growing risk appetite in a relatively benign operating environment highlights the importance of appropriate buffers against potential stress Fitch said. Fitch had revised its operating environment midpoint score as it's called for Indian banks to double B from double B plus in March 2020 after assessing that the pandemic was likely to worsen the existing stresses facing the sector. Fitch has affirmed the sovereign rating for the country at triple B minus with a stable outlook in May and is currently forecasting real GDP growth to average 6.4% annually in the 3 years to March 2026. 
Earlier in May, Standard & Poor's ratings had also said that it expects the banking sector profitability to stabilize at a healthy level and that banks' asset quality would continue to improve. The formation of new non-performing loans will remain at cyclically low levels despite pressure from higher interest rates, S&P Global Ratings Credit Analyst Geeta Chug said, and a recovery in written-off accounts is also boosting the profitability, BQ Prime quoted her as saying. While all of this is good news, the India part at least, one must keep in mind that things can reverse pretty quickly as it's happened before. Oil prices are rising. Where could they go? Two months ago, it looked like oil prices would float and drift in the $70 per barrel range for the rest of the year. And now, they are on a tear of sorts in the $85 range and poised to go even further up, going by what analysts are saying. Now, this is of course various implications, though not perhaps immediately. In June last year, by the way, oil had touched $112 a barrel, leading to much concern all around. And Russia, by the way, invaded Ukraine in late February 2022. The International Energy Agency said last week that global oil demand reached record levels in June and is poised to peak again in August. World oil demand hit a record 103 million barrels a day in June, the IEA said. The agency also said that demand could rise further in August, that's now, and demand for 2023 as a whole is expected to reach 102.2 million barrels per day. China is responsible for most of this spike, or more than 70%, the IEA said, adding that demand was stronger than expected there and reached new highs, despite persistent concerns over the health of the economy. The IEA also said that Russia's oil exports breached the price cap put in place by the Group of Seven or G7 nations. Prices reached an average of $64.41 a barrel last month, above the $60 a barrel cap the group set. Forbes magazine describes the cap as being designed to limit Moscow's ability to fund its war in Ukraine while simultaneously averting chaos in global energy markets. The rule has changed the flow of oil and exports from Russia away from Europe and towards Asia, and this is where India also comes in. The IEA said crude exports to India and China accounted for 80% of Russia's shipments, and as you may have read elsewhere, a fair bit of that oil gets reshipped from India to other countries. So to understand what's fundamentally changed in recent months and what that tells us about the near future on oil prices, I reached out to oil analyst Vandana Hari of Vanda Insights in Singapore. Look, I think a couple of things and both I would say have been a little bit unexpected. One is on the supply side and one is on the demand side. So on the supply side, OPEC plus, and mind you, not all members of the organization, but eight members of that alliance stepped up and said, we are going to cut production because it seems that there is oversupply in the markets. And basically what they didn't say, which is probably more important, is that they did not like prices threatening to slip down. And, you know, that had been a feature of the markets pretty much since the banking crisis of March. And it was widely believed, and I would say rightly so in the market, that $70 per barrel for Brent was the sort of threshold, a pain point, if you will, for the OPEC plus alliance. And in order to protect that, they proceeded with cuts, output cuts. That wasn't all. Then Saudi Arabia came in with a second round, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously being even more hawkish to support prices at a higher level. 
And they said, we will, on top of the cuts that had been announced by the eight members, including Saudi Arabia, they said, we will now cut an additional 1 million barrels per day, which is substantial, right? It's 1% of the global consumption. We will cut that. And they also wanted to keep the market in suspense. So they said, we will do it a month at a time. So far, they have rolled it over for three months. So it started in July, it's continuing in August, and they have already rolled it over to September. So what has happened is all of these cuts put together have taken away about 3.2 million barrels per day of supply from the market as of August, compared with what they were pumping in February. Now, that kind of a cut, just to put this in context, is the biggest OPEC plus cut since May 2020, mind you, which was at the height of the demand crash caused by COVID. If you look at OPEC plus output, it has sunk to two-year lows. Now, while two years may not sound that drastic, you have to keep in mind that two years ago, we were in the throes of COVID still. The pandemic had destroyed substantial global demand. So that's where we are. So OPEC is basically, or OPEC plus rather, is tightening supply. The other is on the demand side. So what has actually changed on the demand side, it's very hard to say. What has really changed is the sentiment. When you look at the broader financial markets, which by and large across the globe are led by what is the mood amongst the investment community in the US, the financial markets in the US, a dramatic change that unfolded on that scene, I would say, since the end of June, but very distinctly since early July, was the so-called soft landing narrative. So basically, in short, it is a picture that has now come together with a lot of conviction in the investment community that U.S. inflation is cooling down substantially, exactly what the Fed wanted. Whereas at the same time, the U.S. economy is proving quite resilient. Spending is proving quite resilient. Consumer sentiment is proving quite resilient in the face of the unprecedented tightening of monetary policy that we've seen from the Fed. So all of this put together has injected a lot of cheer, a lot of optimism in the financial markets, which has flown through as a proxy for demand for oil. So these are the two main factors that have uh, quite visibly changed the outlook. Uh, Vandana, from the India context, we buy a lot of Russian oil. Prices have been going down there. And you've been saying that this is not the smoothest of trades. What's happening there? Yeah. So when India first started buying, there was a little bit of concern and rightly so that how would the Western allies and especially the US, you know, which is known to sanction trades, we know producers like Iran and Venezuela have been living under US sanctions. India, for instance, used to buy Iranian oil, but doesn't buy anymore simply because it is sanctioned by the US. So there was concern, even though the US had said that what we want is that we, the NATO allies, will not buy Russian oil, but we want Russian oil to continue flowing into the markets. They had said that, but it was cold comfort for countries, especially in Asia, that have seen the effect that U.S. sanctions can have, right? Direct effect and even indirect. You see lots of refiners just wanting to avoid taking that risk, a lot of financial institutions, a lot of banks wanting to avoid taking a risk and not touching trade where they fear there might be the chance of U.S. sanctions. So that, however, subsided gradually. But of late, there's been a little bit concern again because Russian crude prices have gone above the $60 per barrel price cap. 
uh, that the West has decreed. Now, just to be clear, that price cap is only applicable if the buying parties, refiners in Asia, are actually using Western services such as shipping or insurance or other trade financing services. Now, we know that the oil, Russian oil flowing to India is not using those by and large, but we can't say that 100% of it, that is the case. So there has been a little bit of concern. And of course, I think let us not forget that India and, you know, the foreign minister being a case in point has had to constantly defend India's position on the international stage, you know, because the other blame that gets put at India's doorstep routinely in the international stage is that uh, indirectly the country is helping fund the war in, in Russia. So at least that I think India has managed very, very elegantly, very firmly. And, you know, I'm, I'm basically quite proud of how it has been handled that question in the international arena. Right. Uh, Vandana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Where is inflation going? Speaking about rising crude prices, the other thing that's rising and we've been discussing is food prices and overall inflation. India's consumer price inflation jumped to 7.4% in July 23 as compared to 4.8% in June 2023. This is now a 15-month high. The jump was primarily driven by food inflation, which accounts for nearly half the inflation basket. The larger question, of course, is what's the near future looking like? And what, if anything, could rein in these rising prices? I spoke with Yuvika Singhal, economist at Quant Eco Research, and began by asking her what she was reading in these numbers, and more importantly, if and when she saw it coming down. It was indeed a shocker for most of us, because if you see the analyst community also, the consensus for this CPI number was somewhere less than 7, 6.9, you know, 8, 6.9 in that kind of a range. So at 7.4, it was definitely a shocker and it exudes some bit of concern as well because it's clearly way above RBI's comfort band of keeping inflation below 6%. There were, I think, surprises to the extent that food, which was in some sense known that tomatoes prices have skyrocketed through the months of June, July, continuing to remain somewhat elevated. So there was an understanding that food and within food, vegetables could tr- drive this number higher. But I think the market just underestimated the extent of the upside. So once we had the data in granularity, when we looked at item by item data, one of the things that did erupt was that we underestimated the upside in vegetable prices. And second, while there was a lot of focus on what happened in tomatoes and some of the other vegetables, I think there was some bit of underappreciation to the fact that price pressures were fairly broad-based within food. So it was not just vegetables, But we also saw price pressures within cereals, rice and wheat, both pulses. And these happen to be very staple items within the consumer's food basket, in addition to the spices. So there were this whole range of subcategories within food, which kind of drove that momentum in food inflation higher. That was the negative or, you know, the shocker part of it largely. But there was also something which was a little bit more positive. Which also, again, I don't know how many, you know, people on the road understand this, but the core side of inflation, which is headline inflation minus food and fuel, which we typically call as demand side of inflation, continued to correct. And for almost a good part of last year, this core inflation was extremely stubborn at higher than 6%. 
And over the last few months, we have seen a consistent correction in core inflation, which gives comfort because that is the demand side of inflation, which is pretty much in control of monetary policy. And for the first time in two years, we saw this number slip below 5%. So the July core inflation came in at 4.8%. And that kind of balanced the shocker that we got on food, vegetables and other aspects within food. So quick question, if vegetables, cereals, pulses and all are rising, is the cause for their going up the same? And to that extent, have we anticipated things well enough? Uh, not really. So there are different dynamics that are at play here. So for uh, tomatoes in particular and some of the other vegetables, the price hike that we are seeing or the spike that we've seen is largely seasonal. And typically, if you go back in history and see how these tomato, potato, onions and other vegetables typically perform from a price perspective in the months of June and July, you typically see strong price momentum. Having said so, this year has been exceptional because it's not just seasonality which is at play, but we also saw unseasonal monsoon, a late start to southwest monsoon and also pest attacks in some of the tomato growing states. So what essentially this has meant that the spike this year has been exceptional as far as tomatoes is concerned. But the good news is that since it's seasonal, we expect price pressures to probably correct with as much fast pace that they've risen. So probably by the time we get the new Kharif tomato output, which is likely to be somewhere around end of August, early September, prices are likely to crash to give us comfort at least on the perishables front. But I can't say the same for cereals where we think that the price increase is much more structural. Wheat, we have seen price pressures build over the last one year, variety of reasons, largely because of the war. Our own domestic output was somewhere on the lower side last year. And increasingly, in the recent few months, we have seen price pressures spill over to rice. And obviously, we know about the government banning rice exports, uh, the non-Basmati side of rice exports. And that is just a preemptive move because they somewhere expect the paddy output, that is the Kharif paddy output, to probably surprise on the downside. Remember, we saw a late start to monsoon this year. Sowing of paddy was somewhat lagged. Some of the east-northeastern states continue to see a rainfall deficit. And there is an expectation with monsoon expected to be fairly tepid in the month of August, the yields could be hit. So in addition to the seasonality, which could work in our favor as far as vegetable prices is concerned, paddy and wheat, which have a longer crop life, it's not as short as vegetables, which get harvested in a span of three to four months. Here we are talking about almost a year of cycle for both rice and wheat. The price pressures there could be somewhat more durable and also for pulses where we are seeing tur dal, you know, for that matter, especially see a very sharp increase in prices. So when you add all of this up, what is it looking like in the next few months? What I'm getting from you is that some things are going to go up and some things could moderate and go down, like for example, vegetables or tomatoes. So what is the final number likely to look like? So the broad picture essentially is that most of these price pressures are likely to intensify in Q2. So if you see RBI's latest commentary, they did revise up the Q2 inflation forecast by almost 100 basis points. Our initial estimates suggest that it could be even higher than what the RBI's Q2 number is looking like at this point in time. So clearly there is going to be an intensification of price pressures in Q2. But like I said, because a large part of it is seasonal by the time you are in Q3, a large part of the vegetable price spike would have waned. However, we will keep a close watch on what happens on cereals and pulses. And there too, there is a lot of 
administrative measures that have already been announced. So we do find the government being extremely nimble-footed in terms of whether it's curtailing rice exports or wanting to import pulses, wanting to import probably wheat and by lowering duties on wheat. So these are all administrative measures which are either being taken or are being mulled over. So it will be probably a mix of seasonal correction plus administrative measures playing out on inflation. Yubika, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, Govind. Thank you. Manufacturing at the speed of thought Apple's next-generation iPhone 15 is set to launch mid-September or less than four weeks. And production of this latest Apple phone model is already starting in Tamil Nadu, known once upon a time for its temples and arts, but now equally for its rapidly growing electronics ecosystem, apart from its traditional auto and auto components industries. The larger point here is that setting up manufacturing plants in this electronics, semiconductor or computer on wheels era is much faster than what we thought or knew of. And Tesla, interestingly, has a record of sorts here, which I will come to in a moment. A Foxconn technology group plant in Sri Perumbudur is preparing to deliver the newest iPhone 15 weeks after it starts shipping from factories in China, even as the company tries to increase the number of phones coming out from India, Bloomberg News is reporting. Earlier, Apple only assembled a small part of its iPhones in India, and that was running about six to nine months behind China. Now, Apple produced about 7% of its phones in India as of March end, and this was worth about $7 billion. Of course, the iPhone 15 production flow will depend on both the availability of components, which will be imported, and the production lines gearing up at Sri Purumbudur near Chennai, which comes back to the point about speed. Incidentally, other Apple suppliers in India, Pegatron and a Wistron Corp factory that is being acquired by the Tata Group will also assemble the iPhone 15, sources told Bloomberg. Now, speaking about speed and speed of thought, Tesla, which is presently in advanced talks to set up a plant in India to make a roughly 20 lakh rupee small car, at least according to reports, can likely go or come to market faster than most people think which is as much a feature of Tesla's execution focus or excellence as it is of modern manufacturing assembly systems. Tesla's Shanghai Gigafactory went from permits to finished plant in just 168 days to open in January 2020 to launch the Model 3, Bloomberg News had reported at that time. Also at the time, the China plant there was assembling more than 1,000 cars a week and was ramping up fast. All this is to say that the manufacturing system in this era of factories can come up pretty rapidly. That is, of course, assuming that the permits, permissions, and maybe subsidies also move fast. Tesla's China-produced car at the time was included on a list of vehicles qualifying for an exemption from a 10% purchase tax in China. It also qualified for a government subsidy of about $3,560 per vehicle. Rains are moody. Last month, it was excess rains and thus above normal rains. Now, two weeks into August, we are apparently looking at below normal rainfall. Data presented by the Indian Meteorological Department says rainfall went from a positive 15% in July to a negative 36% in August as 263 of 717 districts in India received inadequate rainfall. And bizarre as it might sound to someone who is not familiar with India's drought to floods paradox, we are now once again confronted with drought in some parts of the country. The deficit rainfall in multiple eastern and southern states has firmed up the fear of drought, particularly in worst-hit states like Bihar, where 31 out of 38 districts received inadequate rainfall, according to reports. 
Kerala, Jharkhand and Uttar Pradesh saw many of their districts go mostly dry. Now, the Met Office is forecasting a pickup in rainfall around August 18th. India's most affordable homes are in Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Ahmedabad, Kolkata and Pune are the most affordable housing markets in the country, real estate consulting firm Knight Frank India said yesterday. The firm in its proprietary affordability index yesterday said higher home loan rates have reduced affordability across all markets so far in 2023. Now, this is obviously not news. But what is news is perhaps the assessment that comparing average incomes to monthly installments paid out, Ahmedabad in Gujarat comes out to be the most affordable, followed by Pune and Kolkata. India's Reserve Bank has raised rates by about 250 basis points after slashing rates during the pandemic. Higher rates have increased the EMI or monthly installment load by 14.4% since then. Two weeks ago, Anarok, another real estate consulting firm, said home loan EMIs for customers who bought properties less than 40 lakh rupees have gone up 20% in the last two years thanks to the rise in mortgage rates. In several cases, the total interest payable over a 20-year period would or is working out higher than the principal. All I can say is, do take a careful note of this. That's it from me for today. Do write in with your comments and feedback on segments you would like to see on The Core Report. Write in at govindraj at thecore.in. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow, same time. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.